to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Well, it has been a good weekend. It's been a good end to the week. Uh, in our church community here, um, we've been able to celebrate Passover on Thursday night, a Messianic Passover Seder with some amazing food, by the way, and, and a great celebration of Christ's redemption through his death. Uh, on Friday night, we got to celebrate Good Friday with some churches in the area over at Emmanuel Church. This morning, we get to celebrate that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And for many, many years, almost 2,000 years, believers have been practicing this by saying, He is risen, and responding with? Because this is so central to every bit of the gospel. We're going to look at a couple passages today. We're going to focus on the resurrection, of course, because it's Resurrection Sunday. But Resurrection Sunday coincides with something that is in the Jewish calendar as well, and it's called the Feast of First Fruits. So if you are here and you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me briefly to Leviticus chapter 23, and then we will go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Leviticus 23, probably not the passage you intended to go to beginning uh, this morning. Uh, if you don't have a copy of Scripture, we would love to give you a copy of it. We believe that, these, uh, that this book should be read, <laughs> and that this book should be a part of our daily life because God speaks to us through His Word. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we'd love to give you one. If you have a friend who doesn't have a copy of the Bible, please take one. We've got some at the back. Take it with you. Give it out to them. Um, these are words that bring life, friends, because they come from the author who gives life. Leviticus 23. I want to invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Scripture this morning. Leviticus 23, we're going to focus on just one small portion of this, beginning in verse 9. The Lord spoke to Moses, speak to the Israelites and tell them, when you enter the land I'm giving you and you reap its harvest, you are to bring the first sheaf of your harvest to the priest. He will wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Sabbath. On the day you wave the sheaf, you are to offer a year-old male lamb without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering is to be four quarts of fine flour mixed with oil as a fire offering to the Lord, a pleasing aroma, and its drink offering will be one quart of wine. You must not eat bread, roasted grain, or any new grain until this very day. And until you have brought the offering to your God, this is a permanent statue throughout your generations, he says to Israel, wherever you live. Now flip with me, please, to basically the other end of the book, uh, going to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm going to read a, f a few verses from the first section, and then I'm going to jump to verse 20. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul is writing here. He says to the church, he says to the believers, the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ at a place called Corinth near Athens, he says this in verse 1. Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel I proclaim to you. You received it and have taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you unless you believe for no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received 
that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. Jump over to verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God, to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. But when it says everything is put under his feet, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. And when everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your word. We thank you for how it teaches us and how it guides us and trains us in righteousness. And Father, we thank you for your spirit who leads and guides us into what is true. I pray that you would reveal yourself to us today, that we would hear from you, that we would know the sure, confident hope that we have because Jesus has risen from the grave. We bless you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. So a couple different passages, and I read the first one to you because I wanted to set a context for first fruits, which is what Paul talks about in the book of 1 Corinthians. So when he references first fruits, he's going back to this idea, this teaching that was given to the Jewish people in Leviticus 23. First fruits, and I kind of made a brief mention of this last week. First fruits is a Jewish feast that occurs on the day after the Shabbat of Passover. All right, that sounds confusing. It's not really. The day after Shabbat is Sunday, right? Shabbat in Jewish framework is Sabbath, which is Saturday, according to the Jewish framework and what God told them to observe and keep. And so the day after the Shabbat, after Passover. So Passover began last Wednesday night. And then um, Shabbat of Passover was yesterday, which means today is the day of first fruits, which means it is the day of resurrection, this is what happens when Jesus is raised from the grave. What he ends up doing is not only conquering sin and death and all this kind of stuff. He ends up fulfilling one of the feasts of Israel. First fruits was this, was this time in which Israel, at the beginning of a harvest, they would take that initial portion of harvest and they would say, God, we give this to you. We recognize that this is yours. The first of it is yours and everything else of it belongs to you. And so first fruits becomes this offering unto God. And the reason that the resurrection matters so much is because he lives, we too can live. Without his life, all we have is another person who is killed by the Romans on a cross. 
Estimates say that there's some 20,000 Jewish men around the time of Jesus who died on the cross. What makes Jesus so different is that he didn't stay dead. He arose. In fact, it says God raised him from the dead. And that's how we can have life. I want to look at a couple of verses in the beginning here of, um, of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I want to talk this morning about why the resurrection matters. I've given you the big point of that already. Why resurrection matters. But Paul is writing to a local congregation in a place called Corinth. Here's a map of the Mediterranean Sea. Um, over here you have Israel. You have Jerusalem here. It comes up all the way to Syria, Cilicia, Lycia. When we studied the, um, the book of Revelation, we spent a ton of time right in this area. Um, Paul founded a church over here near Athens, Greece, just to the west of Athens, Greece, and it's a place called Corinth. Corinth um, today looks something like this. You can see it's right on the water, and Corinth became very, very um, important to the time in which Paul is writing. Um, it's actually interesting because just a couple decades before Paul writes, the, the city had been destroyed. Then it was rebuilt, but it was such an important location that it thrived with trade and it thrived with um, business. There's this, um, I, I didn't actually include a, a photo of this, but, but what they did is they actually cut a canal to go, you can kind of see it on this map, to go right right by Corinth. And they cut a canal. It's called the Canal of Corinth so that they could move goods from one side of the water to the other side of the water without having to take a big sail around Achaia and all the way up in here. So it became a port of, of uh, entry for many time, kinds of goods and services. Today, this is also kind of what it looks like. So this is looking the other way. The, the water's behind the photographer here. This is looking up to what is called the Acro Corinth. And there was, there was a big temple on top of that, that had a lot of cult prostitution and all that kind of stuff going on there. Corinth was an incredibly challenging place to live as a believer. And the reason it was so challenging is because it had so many people come and going. It had so many different influences that it, it just kind of oozed immorality in so many ways. In fact, the, the term to Corinthianize has negative and like pagan sexual references to it. So you're like, oh, you've Corinthianized. That meant not something, something not so good back in the ancient period. As Paul is writing this letter to a church whom he loves, he's writing a letter to them knowing the culture in which they live and knowing the, the, the need of the gospel to go to the people of Corinth and also knowing the challenges and hostilities that they would face. We're reading from 1 Corinthians um, this morning. There's also a second Corinthians. Scholars think that there's at least probably four different letters that Paul sends back and forth to the believers at Corinth to give them instruction on how to walk after Jesus, to give them correction in ways that they're not walking according to the way of Jesus. And here in this passage, Paul is actually addressing one of those things that he wants them to, to really know. This city is a, is, and this church is a church made up of Jews and Gentiles, 60 to 200,000 people in this whole area. It's a Roman colony. And the people, both in the community and I would say probably the church also affected by the community. I like the way that Dr. Mike Van Landingham writes it. He says, if you were to summarize all the problems in Corinth, he said, 
it would probably be unbridled and arrogant self-promotion which exhibited itself in every manner of their daily walk, their sexuality, their preference, their worship practices, their communal meals, who was invited, who was not. And so he's wanting to kind of give them these most important ideas and these most important truths so that they can have their lives built on the rock of Christ. So he writes this to them. And let's look at a couple of these truths that he, that he addresses here. First, I want you to note that in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Now, brothers, you could say brothers and sisters, he's talking to the whole church there. I want to clarify for you the gospel that I proclaimed to you. One of the things I want you to see about the gospel is that Paul proclaims it. Meaning it is a verbal message of good news. It's something that is to be shared. It's something that, that becomes a part of who you are. And the natural overflow is to say, can I tell you about what Jesus has done in my life? He says, the gospel I proclaim to you. And then he says, you received it and you have taken your stand on it. So the gospel is a verbal message of good news that is proclaimed. Secondly, you received it, which means the gospel requires a personal deliberate response. Now, there's two responses. There's no really in the middle. There's receiving it, and then there's not. He's writing to people who have received it. Not only have they received it, they have taken their stand on it. The idea of taking their stand has to do with their life has now been reoriented. Because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, their life is now no longer marked by what it used to be. Their life is reoriented by its truth, not the old way in which they used to walk. He says, you've taken your stand on it. You are also saved by it. If you hold to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you believed for no purpose. It's interesting here in verse 2. Um, you could probably better translate it here instead of you are also saved by it, which is the way my translation reads it. Yours might say something like you are being saved by it because it's a, it's a present passive. In other words, the action of salvation, we often break this up in big theological language to be the moment in which you've been justified before God through Christ's death and his resurrection. But then the action of um, the action of growing more in Christ's likeness is part of that salvation experience until we are glorified and we are with the Lord. So when he talks about you are being saved by it, he's saying, I know who you are. You've responded to the gospel. You've received Christ Jesus as Lord. And now you're learning how to walk that out in your everyday life. You are being saved by it if you hold to it unless you believe for no purpose. In other words, he's saying, there's a reason for all this. There's a reason that you have become a Jesus follower. There is a calling that you have upon your life now, not to walk in the old way, but rather in the grace of God to walk in the new. Because God, God wants to restore all of who you and I are to himself. Here, in the gospel, in the beginnings of the gospel, in being saved in the first sense of this word, being justified before God, we are no longer looked at enemies of God. We're no lo longer looked and seen as people who are sinners, the noun. Now we are people who sin, but we are not sinners in the sense that when God looks at us, he goes, I can't 
partner with you because you are separate from me. He, he actually, upon salvation, he plants, he, he gives us his spirit to come and live inside of us, to lead and to guide us in all righteousness and truth. He makes us, we've been studying the book of Colossians, for those of you who haven't been with us the last several weeks, one of the things he calls the church at Colossae is he calls them holy. And the church there has to learn, what does it mean that we are called holy, and yet there's still a lot of sin, the verb in our life, that God wants to help us rid ourselves of, and to leave behind and to walk in his grace. And so he he comes down to this, and he says, if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose, for what I passed on to you as most important, what I also received— I love it. Paul is sharing something he received. We'll hear about Paul's story in just a minute. That Christ died for our sins, important part of the gospel, according to the scriptures, another important part of the gospel. The Messiah's death was foretold by the Hebrew scriptures. By, let's see, by this much of your Bible (laughs) points forward to the amazing work of Messiah. Now, he works through people. He talks about a lot of different stuff in there. But Jesus says, these are the scriptures that testify about me. The gospel. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised. And on the third day, according to the scriptures, this part right here, according to the scriptures, then he appeared to Cephas. That's Peter, by the way. Then to the 12, then he appeared to 500 plus brothers at one time. These issues that he is laying down are of first importance. The Messiah did not randomly die. He died because our sin broke the relationship humanity had with God back in the garden. That's why he says that Christ died for our sins, for my sin, for yours. He didn't just die for us, though. He died in our place because there's no way that we could pay the debt that sin cost. He died according to the scriptures, an intentional plan of God. Many great scriptures point forward to that. He was buried. He was raised on the third day, which is this idea of first fruits. It's interesting that this this concept of being raised on the third day is listed in every major section of the Old Testament or the Older Testament. Uh, There's three divisions uh, to the Older Testament. There's the Torah, the first five books. There's the prophets, the next section. And then there's the writings. In Leviticus 23, the section in the Torah that we read this morning, there's this first fruits that we see fulfilled in Messiah, verses 9 through 15 of Leviticus 23. In Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 12, prophesies of the raising of the Messiah. And then Psalm 16 is part of the writings, verses 9 through 11, um, talk about also the being, the Messiah being raised. But not only is um, this a message that is fact, according to the scripture, that's a prophesied fact, that, that was something that could be verified. This was something that was verified to multiple people. Notice all the people he name drops. Uh, you know, he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, one of those prominent disciples of the 12. He says, then to the 12, then to over 500 brothers at one time. In other words, his resurrection is verified by eyewitness testimony. 
And he's writing this to believers in Corinth, and he says to them, most of them who are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. And you could probably read in there that most of whom are still alive, which means if you don't believe me, go find them and talk to them. (laughs) You can go interview whatever their names were. You can go interview the family over here that saw Jesus and the individual over here that met Jesus. You can go talk to Mary. You can go talk to Thomas. You can go talk to all these people who said, yeah, that was crazy. I didn't expect it. And actually, when you think about the disciples and their story at the resurrection, they didn't expect it. Like they were afraid when they saw Jesus the first time. It startled them because it didn't conform to what they thought was going to happen. When the Jewish people thought of a Messiah, they thought this would be someone who would come in and save them from the Roman oppressors. But when the Messiah Jesus came, he actually saved them from so much more. He saved them from more than Rome. He saved them from their own sin. He took them out of bondage to sin. And he said... You can now live a new life. You can now have a new hope. You can now have peace. You can now have joy because I died for your sins. I rose from the grave. And there's a whole bunch of people, Paul says, that can testify to the truthfulness of this claim. In fact, Paul says here at the end of it, last of all, uh, in verse eight, last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. Paul's referencing that his story of salvation was very different. All the other apostles got to see Jesus uh, in in person shortly after the resurrection. Paul was a passionate, passionate person for the Jewish faith. So much so that he saw this new group known as Christians to be a threat to the way of religion for his people. And so Paul's life was centered around for for many. many weeks, months, years, um, being observant to the Torah, being a faithful Jew, and stamping out anyone who would come against that. And he saw Jesus and his message as, as a threat to that. And so what he ended up doing is he ended up putting a bunch of followers, messianic followers of Jesus in prison. And it was on a road to a place called Damascus in Syria, where the Lord Jesus appeared to Paul. And he was abnormally born again. The Lord Jesus appears to Paul and he says, why are you persecuting me? And he's like, who are you? He's like, I am the Lord, the one whom you are persecuting. Paul's life is forever changed. And I I think even the, the the greatest proof of the truthfulness of the gospel, in my opinion, besides the resurrection, is that the message of Jesus brought real life change to people like Paul, to people like me. If you knew me before I was a follower of Jesus, you'd know me as a middle school kid who had significant anger issues, (laughs) a person who never wanted to be wrong. Paul's story, my story, your story, Every one of our stories before Christ were marked by sin. Marked by a way in which we could not find our way out were it not for a Messiah who would step down into human history and take upon our sin and become our sin offering. 
He says at the end of this here, however, I worked more than any of them, not I, but God's grace that was at work within me. This is in verse 10. And he said right before that, by God's grace, I am what I am. His grace toward me was not ineffective. In other words, it was very effective. Verse 11 says, therefore, whether it is I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. For Paul, the resurrection is not a doctrine to defend. It is a truth that brings hope and life and absolutely transformed him. Because if Christ was in the grave and Christ never raised again, he's without hope. Let's look at that. Let's look at this next section here. In verse 12, we didn't read this together yet, but it says, Now if Christ as raised from the dead, Paul says, How can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? What I think is happening here is that there are some people within the church at Corinth who didn't believe in the resurrection. One of the um, groups within Judaism at the time was the Sadducees. And the Sadducees, one of the things that they didn't believe in was the resurrection. That's why they were so sad, you see. <laughs> Sorry, once a year I have to tell that joke. It's a, it's a groaner, I know. But some scholars think that the Sadducees, or Sadducean Jews, people who had grown up as Sadducees, as opposed to Pharisees, or Zealots, or Essenes, or Herodians, all Jewish people, but all have a different bent, kind of like in America, we have all sorts of different bents on certain things. Um, some people think that Sadducean Jews came in and said, don't you know, the resurrection didn't really happen. And Paul is having to clarify the beliefs and the truthfulness of this because the resurrection is absolutely fundamental to the gospel message. If you take the resurrection away, Paul says you are still in your sin. You have no hope. So he, he begins this argument and, and verse 12 is, is the basis for the argument that's going to follow here. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation and so is your faith. In addition, Paul says, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sin. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. And if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. So these, these people were saying there's no resurrection and Paul basically says, if there's no resurrection, then, and if our hope is in Christ for now only and not for the rest of our lives in resurrected bodies, he says we should be pitied. He, he doesn't want to mince words here. And so he, he makes it so, uh, he, he makes this argument so strongly because the resurrection absolutely matters. Many of the people, and we've looked at this even within um, our study in the book of Colossians, many people of this time held that the soul was the only thing that went on and, and lived spiritually. They, think that the, they thought that the bodies would, would die and then you would live on as a spirit being. The problem with that is that's not how God created humanity. He created us in his image. 
He created us male and female. And he breathed the breath of life into Adam and Eve. And they became living beings. Comprised of a body. Comprised of a soul. Comprised of a spirit. And before the fall, their spirit and their soul and their body was in perfect shalom with God. It was in perfect peace and wholeness with God. What happens back in the beginning of the story, Genesis 1, actually Genesis 2 and 3, if you want to go read it later, you don't need to turn there now. What happens in Genesis 2 and 3, especially chapter 3, is that Adam and Eve say, we'd rather be our own gods, and they, they essentially um, cause a mutiny against God by saying, no, you know, the serpent comes to them and says, did God really say, and they say, eh, this apple looks good. I know God said, not, or not an apple, this piece of fruit. I'm not really sure it was an apple, but they, they take this piece of fruit that God said don't take. And by doing so, they wanted to be gods themselves. And everyone from that moment on has been born, the scripture says here, born in Adam. It says in the passage we read in uh, verse 22 of chapter 15, it says, uh, verse 21 here, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam, back at the beginning of the story, all die, so in Christ all will be made alive again. So what God is all about is restoring his humanity back to their intended purpose. Back to who he created them to be. Which means, if we put our hope in Christ for this life only, and we have just a spirit floating around or a soul floating around somewhere out there, we've missed part of what it means to be human. And what Jesus does through the resurrection is he takes upon a new humanity with a resurrection body. That becomes a guarantor in terms of because Christ has been raised from the grave, we know that one day too we will have resurrection bodies. For all of us who have aching backs and knees that don't work and ears that can't hear as well as they used to or voices that go out. For all of us who have bodies broken by sickness and pain and disease. It should be good, good news good hope. This is not the end. The resurrection hope is for today, but it exists for eternity. And that's Paul's claim here. And so he makes this big argument, verses 12 through 19, which we read, that say, if Christ has not been raised, because if there's no resurrection of the dead, you might as well phone it all in, because your faith is is worthless and you should be pitied because you've given your hope and you've given your life for something that doesn't really pan out. But <laughs> it, it, it's a fantastic conjunction that takes us into verse 20. He says, but now. And it's like he's taking this whole message of <sighs> you should be pitied if that's what you really think and if that's what's really true. But now, <laughs> he says, Christ has been raised from the dead. I like he doesn't say, but if Christ has been raised from the dead. He could have done that for sake of argument, but he just wants to plan it firmly, I think. He says, but Christ, but now, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay? This idea of first fruits comes in here. First fruits is a harvest. Let me go to here. 
First fruits is a harvest. The Jewish people, they would take the first of their crop on the, on the um, Sunday following the Shabbat of Passover, which coincides with Jesus' resurrection historically. They would take that first um, sheaf of grain. They take a couple other things according to Leviticus. They would bring it before the Lord, recognizing that God, as you have brought abundance and you've brought food to us in this next year, we give this first portion to you. And really, when they do that, it's an act of trust. Because if you've just come through the winter months and you know that your grain stock is starting to dwindle a little bit, and you cut that first stalk of fresh grain and you say, I'm not going to eat this. I'm actually going to trust this to God. The picture that he's wanting to seal in their minds and in their hearts is if you can trust God for this, you can trust him for the rest of the harvest. In the next couple of verses, um, Paul's going to make that claim for um, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through man. For as in Adam all dies, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ will be resurrected. Um, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and all power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death, for God has put everything under his feet. Everything. Everything. I love the way that Dr. Randy Smith talks about this particular passage. He says it this way. As a man, he, Christ, conquered death for the actions of a man brought death. Verses 21 through 22. He took back in body what Adam lost in the garden. What Adam lost in the garden. His spiritual relationship with the father was severed because of sin. His body, it actually says that Adam died. Because the scripture says, when you eat of this, you will surely die. He died spiritually that day. But he didn't die physically until many hundreds of years later, according to the scriptures. So, what Adam experienced spiritually, he then experienced bodily. And then this is now brought back by the Messiah. He took back in body what Adam lost in the garden. Jesus was raised as the first fruits offering. This first portion. Then the end comes eventually destroying even death. He says, the early church celebrated the Sunday of the first fruits and began early to understand that this was the great symbolic show that God would bring about our resurrection as sure as the spring harvest follows the winter rains. So when Christ was raised from the dead, when God raised him from the dead, when the father raised him, it was a sign that you can bank on it. All who put their trust in me will also live again. In John's gospel, Jesus puts it this way. He says, because I live, you will live. And his intention is the same as the fathers and the sons and the spirits back at creation. When he creates man, a whole being, body, soul, spirit, to be then redeemed in spirit one day to be redeemed in soul, and one day to be redeemed in body. And Christ is the promise, the down payment, that what God has said, God will secure 
and God will accomplish. Christ, the first fruits after his coming at the parousia, those who belong to Christ will have our resurrection bodies reunited with our soul and our spirit who are with the Lord in the intervening time. Then the end comes where everything is put under his feet, finally abolishing or setting aside death. And when we think of death, we have to think separation. What happened to the garden was man was spiritually separated from God. Eventually, their body would cease to function, and their body and their spirit would be separated from each other. What the resurrection brings is a unity of all these things. But what God brings through the Messiah Jesus is he brings shalom back in the way that he intended. Right relationship with God, right relationship with one another, and in a body to live and dwell for all of eternity. That should be good news to us as resurrection people. What is God's heart for you? What is God's intention for you? In the time in which we live, 2 Peter talks about how God awaits to return because he longs to see more people put their faith and their trust in the Messiah Jesus. Because it's only in Christ that your hope can be found. It's only in Christ that your joy can be met. It's only in Christ that healing and wholeness for all the hard things of life will find their needs met. What is God's intention for you? God's intention, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to know the truth of the resurrection today. To know that this life is not the end. And that we look forward to a day where we will see him face to face and we will always be with the Lord. This isn't the end. If you're not a follower of Jesus here today, maybe you're kicking the the tires of faith. God's passion for you is that he loves you with just an amazing love. A love that was so great that he sent his son, his only son, the one whom he loved to be your sin offering. He wants you to find life in him today. You can't manufacture it. You can't make yourself right with God. All you can do is respond to God's offer of forgiveness and grace. In the book of Romans, um, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. That is a message that's not just an intellectual thing. It's something that he calls us to with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength. Not to earn anything. You can't earn a position with God. I couldn't earn a position with God. But I did have to come to, my, to the end of myself and say, God, I keep trying to make myself right before. I grew up in a, I grew up in a, a great Christian home. And I grew up in a, in a culture for which I'm so deeply grateful But I grew up in a culture where I thought, if I did this, then God will love me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who does not believe, or anyone who believes is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. 
John's gospel goes on to say, this is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Anyone who does evil hates the light and does not want to come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the life that what he has seen, has done plainly, has been done by God. What God wants to do is he wants to come into your life today. He wants to completely change you. But as Paul said here, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And right before that, he says, I proclaim this gospel to you. You received it and you've taken your stand on it. You have to receive the gift that is offered. You have to. There's no other way. You can't earn your way, but you do have to receive the gift of God's grace. So what then is the purpose of mankind? What then, how then shall we live? I love the way that the Westminster, Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Really sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> There's so many things we set our hearts and our minds to. When the chief end that God has for us is for our lives in everything we do to glorify him. But not just to glorify him, to enjoy him. Are you glorifying God with your life today? Maybe the answer, or maybe the question for many of us might be, are you enjoying God today? As you learn to walk with the Lord, the enjoyment of his presence is an amazing thing that will meet every need that you have this side of eternity. I love the way that Isaac Watts, the great famed hymn writer, puts it. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Father, we thank you for Jesus the one who died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and was raised on the third day. We thank you, God, that we can have assurance of knowing that we have a future with you because of the resurrection. We know, God, that one day, if we are in Christ, if we have received your gift of grace through your son, we know that one day we will see you face to face. We know one day that the pains and the toils and the cares of this life will become secondary. Until then, Lord, for those of us who are in Christ, teach us what it means to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. And God, for those of us who are, who are still kicking around the tires of what it means to actually give our lives to Jesus, I pray that you would convict Pray that you would convict us of our sin and our need for a savior. How great the chasm that lay between us, how high a mountain we could not climb. And yet, God, you sent your son. We thank you, God, that as Jesus said, because he lives, we live. We stake, our, we stake our life on that truth today.
We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.